0: CHAPTER Twelve OF THE STORY OF A COMMON SOLDIER OF ARMY LIFE IN THE CIVIL WAR, 1861-1865. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY SUE ANDERSON. THE STORY OF A COMMON SOLDIER OF ARMY LIFE IN THE CIVIL WAR. 1861-1865, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 12. Deval's Bluff, Little Rock, August-October, 1863. On the morning of August 21st, the pike cast off and started down the Mississippi River. On reaching the mouth of White River, we turned up that stream, and on August 26th arrived at Deval's Bluff, on the west bank where we debarked. Our trip from Helena was slow and uneventful. The country along White River, from its mouth to Duval's Bluff was wild, very thinly settled, and practically in a state of nature. We passed only two towns on the stream, St. Charles and Clarendon, both small places. On different occasions, I saw several bears and deer on the river bank. they having come there for water, of course, they ran back into the woods when the boat got near them all of steele's infantry was temporarily in camp at deval's bluff while his cavalry was some miles further out i soon found the old regiment and received a warm welcome from all of company d they were much surprised to see me as they had no idea that i would be able to leave the hospital so soon they had had no fighting on this campaign so far and they said that their march across the country from helena had been monotonous and devoid of any special interest. During my first night at Duval's Bluff, there came a heavy and protracted rainstorm, and on waking up the following morning, I found myself about half hip-deep in a puddle of water, and this was the beginning of more trouble. My system was full of quinine taken to break the fever while in the hospital, and the quinine and this soaking in the water did not agree. In a short time, I began to feel acute rheumatic twinges in the small of my back, and in a day or two was practically helpless and could not get up or walk around without assistance. The regiment left Duval's Bluff with the balance of the Army on September 1st, advancing towards Little Rock. I was totally unable to march, but was determined to go along some way, and with Captain Keeley's permission, the boys put me into one of the regimental wagons, this wagon happened to be loaded with barrels of pickled pork standing on end, and my seat was on top of one of the barrels, and it was just the hardest, most painful day's ride in a wagon I ever endured. I was suffering intensely from acute rheumatism in the coupling region, and in this condition, trying to keep steady on top of a barrel and being occasionally violently pitched against the ends of the barrel staves when the wagon gave a lurch into a deep rut, which would give me well-nigh intolerable pain. To make matters worse, the day was very hot. So, when evening came and the column halted, I was mighty near all in. But some of the boys helped me out and laid me on a blanket in the shade, and later brought me some supper of hardtack, bacon, and coffee— Except the rheumatism, I was all right, and had a good appetite, and after a hearty supper felt better. Next morning, in consequence of the active exertions of Captain Keeley in the matter, an ambulance drove up where I was lying, and I was loaded into it. And, oh, it was a luxury. Poor Enoch Wallace had been taken down with a malarial fever, and he was also a passenger. Likewise two other soldiers whose names I have forgotten— enoch had been promoted to second lieutenant and had been acting as such for some months but his commission was not issued until september third a day when he was a very sick man from this on until september tenth the day our forces captured little rock my days were spent in the ambulance at night the sick of each division of whom there were hundreds would bivouac by the side of some lagoon or small watercourse the attendants would prepare us some supper, and the surgeons would make their rounds, administering such medicine as the respective cases required. The prevailing type of sickness was malarial fever, for which the sovereign specific seemed to be quinine. As for me, I was exempt from taking of medicine for which I was thankful. The surgeon, after inquiry into my case, would sententiously remark, Ah, acute rheumatism, and pass on. I was at a loss to understand this seeming neglect, but a sort of explanation was given me later, which will be mentioned in its order. The food that was given the sick was meager and very unsatisfactory, but it was probably the best that could be furnished under the circumstances. Each man was given an oyster can full of what seemed to be beef soup, with some rice or barley grains in it by the time it got around to us there was usually a thin crust of cold tallow on the top and the mere looks of the mess was enough to spoil one's appetite if he had any one evening wallace and i were sitting side by side with our backs against a tree when an attendant came to us and gave each one his can of the decoction above mentioned it was comical to see the look of disgust that came over the face of poor enoch he turned towards me and tilting his can slightly to enable me to see the contents spoke thus. Now ain't this nice stuff to give a sick man. I've a good notion to throw the whole business in that fellow's face, referring to the attendant. The trouble with you, Enoch, I said, is that you are losing your patriotism, and I shouldn't be surprised if you'd turn secesh yet, kicking on this rich, delicious soup. Next thing you'll be ordering turtle soup, and clamoring for napkins and finger bowls you remind me of a piece of poetry i have read somewhere something like this Jesserin waxed fat and down his belly hung against the government he kicked and high his buttocks flung the poor old fellow leaned back against the tree and indulged in a long silent laugh that really seemed to do him good i would joke with him after this fashion a good deal and long afterwards he told me that he believed he would have died on that march If I hadn't kept his spirits up by making ridiculous remarks. In speaking of Wallace as old, the word is used in a comparative sense, for the fact is he was only about thirty four years of age at this time. On the evening of September ninth, the sick of our division bivouacked by the side of a small bayou in a dense growth of forest trees. Next morning, the rumor spread among us that on that day a battle was impending that our advance was close to the Confederates, and that a determined effort would be made for the capture of Little Rock. Sure enough, during the forenoon, the cannon began to boom a few miles west of us, and our infantry was seen rapidly moving in that direction. As I lay there helpless on the ground, I could not avoid worrying somewhat about the outcome of the battle. If our forces should be defeated, we sick fellows would certainly be in a bad predicament. I could see in my mind's eye our ambulance starting on a gallop for Duval's bluff, while every jolt of the conveyance would inflict on me excruciating pain. But this suspense did not last long. The artillery practice soon began moving further towards the west, and was only of a short duration anyhow, and we saw no stragglers, which was an encouraging sign, and sometime during the afternoon we learned that all was going in our favor, From the standpoint of a common soldier, I have always thought that General Steele effected the capture of Little Rock with commendable skill, and in a manner that displayed sound military judgment. The town was on the west side of the Arkansas River, and our army approached it from the east. General Price, the Confederate commander, had constructed strong breastworks a short distance east of the town, and on the east side of the river, commanding the road on which we were approaching the right of these works rested on the river, and the left on an impassable swamp. But General Steele did not choose to further Price's plans by butting his infantry up against the Confederate works. He entertained him at that point by ostentatious demonstrations, and attacked elsewhere. The Arkansas was very low, in many places not much more than a wide sandbar, and was easily fordable at numerous points. So Steele had his cavalry and some of his infantry ford the river to the west side, below the town, and advance along the west bank, which was not fortified. General Price, seeing that his position was turned and that his line of retreat was in danger of being cut off, withdrew his troops from the east side and evacuated Little Rock about five o'clock in the afternoon, retreating southwest. Our troops followed close on his heels, and marched in and took possession of the capital city of the state of Arkansas. Our loss in the entire campaign was insignificant, being only a little over a hundred in killed, wounded, and missing. The 61st was with the troops that operated on the east side of the river, and sustained no loss whatever. A few cannonballs poorly aimed and flying high passed over the regiment, but did no mischief, beyond shaking the nerves of some recruits who had never before been under fire. About sundown on the evening of the 10th, the ambulance drivers hitched up and the sick were taken to a division hospital located near the east bank of the river. Captain Keeley came over the next day to see Wallace and myself, and at my urgent request he arranged for me to be sent to the regiment. As heretofore stated, I just loathed the idea of being in a hospital There were so many disagreeable and depressing things occurring there every day and which could not be helped that they inspired in me a sort of desperate determination to get right out of such a place and stay out if possible. Early next morning an ambulance drove up. I was put in it and taken to the camp of the old regiment. Some of the boys carried me into a tent and laid me down on a cot and I was once more in the society of men who were not groaning with sickness, but were cheerful and happy. But it was my fate to lie on that cot for more than a month, and unable even to turn over without help. And I shall never forget the kindness of Frank Gates during that time. He would come every day when not on duty, and bathe and rub my rheumatic part with a rag soaked in vinegar, almost scalding hot, which seemed to give me temporary relief. There was an old doctor of the name of Thomas D. Washburn, an assistant surgeon of the 126th Illinois Infantry, who for some reason had been detailed to serve temporarily with our regiment, and he would sometimes drop in to see me. He was a tall old man, something over six feet high, and gaunt in proportion. I don't remember that he ever gave me any medicine or treatment of any kind, for the reason, doubtless, that will now be stated." One day I said to him, Doctor, is there nothing that can be done for me? Must I just lie here and suffer indefinitely? He looked down at me, sort of sympathetically, and slowly said, I will answer your question by telling you a little story. Once upon a time a young doctor asked an old one substantially the same question you have just asked me, which the old doctor answered by saying, Yes, there is just one remedy, six weeks and, patting me lightly on the shoulder, he further remarked, "'That's all,' and left. The sequel, in my case, confirmed Dr. Washburn's story. The spot where the regiment went into camp on the day of the capture of Little Rock was opposite the town on the east bank of the Arkansas, not far from the river and in a scattered grove of trees. The locality was supposed to be a sort of suburb of the town— and was designated at the time in Army orders as Huntersville, but the only house that I now remember of being near our camp was a little old ramshackle building that served as a railroad depot. Speaking of the railroad, it extended only from here to Duval's Bluff, a distance of about fifty miles, and was the only railroad at that time in the state of Arkansas. The original project of the road contemplated a line from Little Rock, to a point on the mississippi opposite memphis work was begun on the western terminus and the road was completed and in operation as far as Duvall's bluff before the war and then the war came along and the work stopped since then the road has been completed as originally planned this little old sawed-off railroad was quite a convenience to our army at the rock as it obviated what otherwise would have been the necessity of hauling our supplies in wagons across the country from Duval's Bluff. It also frequently came handy for transporting the troops, and several times saved our regiment, and of course others, from a hot and tiresome march. For some weeks while in camp at Huntersville, we lived high on several articles of food not included in the army rations. There were a good many sheep in the country round about that the military authorities confiscated and so we had many a feast on fine, fresh mutton. Corn was plentiful also, and cornmeal was issued to us liberally. Last, but not least, the rich Arkansas River bottomlands abounded in great, big, yellow sweet potatoes that the country people called yams, and we just reveled in them to our entire satisfaction. There was a boy in my company named William Banfield, about the same age as myself, we had been near neighbors at home and intimate friends. Bill was a splendid soldier, seldom sick, and always performed his soldier duties cheerfully and without grumbling. And Bill was blessed with a good digestion, and apparently was always hungry. The place where he would build his cook-fire in this camp was near the front of my tent, where I had a good view of his operations. I was lying helpless on my cot, and, like others so situated from time immemorial, had nothing to do, and scarcely did anything else but watch the neighbors. Among the cherished possessions of our company was an old-fashioned cast-iron Dutch oven of generous proportions, which was just the dandy for baking mutton. Well, Bill would, in the first place, get his chunk of mutton, a fine big piece of the saddle or of a ham, and put it to cook in the oven. Then we had another oven, a smaller affair of the skillet order, in which Bill would set to cooking a cornmeal cake. At the right stage of the proceedings he would slice up some yams and put them in with the mutton. Next, and last, he would make at least a quart of strong black coffee. Both from long experience and critical observation, Bill knew to the fraction of a minute how long it would take for all his converging columns of table comforts to reach the done point on time and all together and the resulting harmony was perfection itself, and, to use an overworked phrase, left nothing to be desired. Dinner now being ready, the first thing Bill did was to bring me an ample allowance of the entire bill of fare, and which, by the way, I had to dispose of as best I could lying down, as it was impossible for me to sit up. Having seen to the needs of a disabled comrade, Bill next proceeded to clear his own decks for action he seated himself at the foot of a big tree, on the shady side, with his back against the trunk. Then, spreading his legs apart in the shape of a pair of carpenter's compasses, he placed between them the oven containing the mutton and yams, at his left side the skillet with the cornbread, and on his right his can of coffee. And then the services began, and how Bill would enjoy his dinner! There was no indecent haste about it, no bolting of the delicacies or anything of the sort. He proceeded slowly and with dignity, while occasionally he would survey the landscape with a placid, contented air. But everything was devoured. The last crumb of cornbread did duty in sopping up the final drop of grease. The banquet over, Bill would sit there a while in silence, gazing perchance at the shimmering waters of the Arkansas and its sandbars glittering in the sun, But ere long his head would begin to droop, he would throw one leg over the Dutch oven, swinging the limb clear of that utensil, settle himself snugly against the tree, and in about five minutes would be asleep. At the time I am now writing, October 1916, Bill is yet alive and residing at Grafton, Illinois. He is a good old fellow, and long may he wave. End of chapter 12